it comes to valuables, normal home insurance coverage has specific theft limits on things like jewelry, watches, furs, or firearms. That's why it is so important to review your coverage with a licensed insurance professional to make sure that everything is covered in case of a claim. That way, if your secret elongated Nephilim skull collection mysteriously gets stolen, you can file a claim sharing the knowledge that that collection was accounted for. Just make sure that you get coverage with the Better Insurance Agency. Visit our website at thebetterquote.com to schedule your consultation today. Only available in Virginia and Tennessee. Please note that all weird collections should be appraised by a third party. If you have a Nephilim skull collection, please contact your nearest biblical scholar immediately. This is Timothy Albrino, and you're listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. We should read our Bible as men digging for buried treasure. The Bible is the world's most popular enigma. Its secrets lost to cultures beneath the sands of time. Or is it? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to seek to read his word, to, to look for that knowledge. He wants you to do that. And the people at Nicaea, they like chopped out 80 books of the Bible. We need to bring those back. There's more bad guys in this thing than a Bruce Willis movie. Oh, yeah. Let's back it up here. I love the intro to your show because it's exactly right. There's these nuggets of gold in his word. As you guys always say in the show, you, you gotta dig it, dig it. Show us your nuggets. God, our creator, lies outside of time and space and matter. I feel like God would be like, hello, McFly. You ain't got it so far, then. There are secret societies think that they are descendants of the giant. I mean, isn't isn't this exciting? I mean, you read it, it's like, wow. The Nephilology Roundtable. But these angels were taken to help immediately. Do not pass gold, do not collect $200. You're out of the game. Dirty hands means clean theology. Can you dig it? What's going on, all my local guys and gals and long-distance pals? We're back. We're back. Yes, we are. Had some uh, technical difficulties starting this one, as usual. It's one of those things. It can go great for three or four times in a row, and then just something weird happens. And Well, I mean, also, too, we're, we're treading to, to new territory here. We're doing the whole the video thing, so it's a little bit of a learning curve. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. But it's getting better. It's getting better. Oh, yeah. Well, Ben, how's work been? They let up on you any? Yeah, a little bit. They let up on you. They've hammered down on me. Yeah. We, we're, we're about getting everything caught up. It's funny we'll we'll change we'll we'll get one unit running and it's like instantly another one goes down <laughs> somewhere else. Um it's that's guaranteed. It is a what job. it is. That yeah, I mean it's yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> job uh, security. Job security, yeah. 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 They moved us on twelve hours and I've had like two days off in thirty days. It's been good money but been pretty ill. Yeah, <laughs> I've been pretty ill. I guarantee it. I think I cut my hair a little, like two weeks too soon. Yeah, you're unrecognizable. Yeah, yeah. You don't even look like it's, your Lego anymore. I know it. I don't even look like Ben. <laughs> you went from looking like Doctor Judd Burton to, yeah. I think I might have my beard might have had his beat. I don't know, man. <laughs> it, mine's pretty bushy. When it's untamed. Yeah. But yeah, it's I've been walking around. It feels like the air conditioning's been on. Yeah, you're cold all the time now. Yep. But uh, 
for you guys that's been joining us on this uh, walkthrough. We we're going through uh, the book of Acts, and uh, we're now in chapter 17. we got a great guest for you guys. Uh, so before we dive into that, we'll open up in prayer. Who's to, I think you prayed last time, wasn't it? Or go ahead. Dear Lord, thank you for the day. Thank you for this time of fellowship together, studying your word, Lord. Please uh, speak to us, give us some discernment, and understand what you're trying to say. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You'll introduce our guest, Steve. Well, today uh, we have uh, what a, one of my favorites uh, because he's part of uh, a group that I love to listen to from the Iron and Myth podcast, which is where the, one of the first places I found out about him, but... We have Brian Gadawa with us, who he's a screenwriter, author, um, has written multiple screenplays uh, to the end of, or to the end of all wars, uh, uh, the visitation, uh, co-wrote uh, My Son Hunter, which has kind of been one of the more popular ones lately. And uh, also actually, I wrote it, wrote it. Oh, there you go. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Wrote it. My fault. Also uh, wrote multiple books the nephilim chronicles the chronicles of the apocalypse the chronicles of the watchers and like i said before one of the four guys that um we've actually you're the last one we've gotten to talk to last piece of the puzzle the last piece of the puzzle from the iron of myth podcast which is one of my favorite things and i love the way you guys are able to uh talk about things from a different standpoint because you guys all have different ideas and different uh, ways that you yeah. view things, but you guys can do it in such a civil way that most people just struggle with that. But I, I love listening to it because there's just every one of you guys has such a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, well, you know, we're a group of four heretics, so, uh, you know, <laughs> I love it. We're used to that. So, you know, we're used to being treated that way. So we're trying to treat each other uh, more civilly. Absolutely. Well, I guess uh, for those that's, uh, living under a rock and don't know much about you uh what got you into to writing and and what is the the baseline of your books and give give people a, a feel of who brian Gadawa is well um so i started out as a writer as a screenwriter actually so many years ago uh, that was my passion i love movies and i wanted to make movies that would uh, actually would honor god with a christian worldview but i wanted to make movies in hollywood not christian movies and so I set about doing that, and um, you know I'm, I made a few movies. It's been tough over the years, absolutely. Uh, to End All Wars was my first movie that got made, and that was like 2011, or no, what was it? 2000? Uh, no, it was a 2000. Oh my gosh, it was like 2001. <laughs> so yeah, it's almost 20 years ago. Ah, that movie still holds up. It's still I'm I'm the most proud of that, um, and that's because I was the sole writer and. Uh, we didn't have time to get screwed up by studios and, and they, you know, they had to stick to budget and keep going. And so they didn't have time to keep working on things until they're bad, you know. And I think that um, but also the, the, the director, the producer and me as the writer, we all worked cohesively together really well. And um, I really respected the director's uh, directing abilities as well. So that was really fun and exciting. But over the years, what happened was I. Um, you know, you have you have some bad years in there. Everyone does, even the most successful people do in Hollywood. You know, um, and it forced me to sort of like uh, consider other writing possibilities. But what happened was was that I I had written a script about a, a a Bible story that I thought would be great for Hollywood. Hollywood would accept it, and it would be great for Christians because it would have both that ancient world and you could get in some mystical things and stuff that would be cool and both sides would be willing to accept it because it could be big budget, et cetera. And that was a story about Noah. And um, I'd, done, I'd done the research, and then I found out that, that uh, Darren Aronofsky was making his movie. So I thought, well, you know what? Um, I'm, you know, I'm a, just a little guy, so I thought, how can I get my story out? I know it probably wasn't going to be made as a movie. And I realized, you know what? I need to make it into a novel. And then that launched, and that, that first novel was called Noah Primeval. That was based on the original screenplay. And what happened was that it really took off. And, of course, you know, I, I had the Nephilim Giants in there, the Watchers, and, you know, sh showing the supernatural spiritual realm, which uh, I had learned that in the process of doing the research for the script. I had discovered Michael Heiser at that time, just before that, actually. 
And so, uh, and this was before his book Unseen Realm was even, uh, a, it was actually just, he was working on it and it was free online. You could just read it as he was working on it. It was called The Myth That Is True or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was, that opened my eyes because also he's an evangelical, he was, you know, he recently passed away, of course, sadly. But um, uh, so he was an evangelical scholar who believed the Bible is God's word, but he also did not um, avoid the more difficult passages passages in the Bible that a lot of evangelical scholarship does. You know, case in point, number one case in point, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And of course, you know, many scholars see the the connotations of connections with other ancient cultures like Greeks and, and surrounding Canaan and such. And they get frighted, they get frightful, and they, they try to, uh, you know, uh, do word salad and sort of cover up the, the similarities between pagan religions. And then liberal scholars, on the other hand, or critical scholars that don't believe in the Bible, you know, they just go, oh, yeah, this is all the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. They're just getting their ideas from Greece and all this, you know, which interestingly, the, the truth is, is the other way around. Actually, Greece got their ideas from the ancient Near East. So all the titans and all that kind of stuff comes from the Rephaim in, in Canaan. But anyway, you know, these. so my point is, is that these similarities that, that are the oddities, as Michael Heiss would often say, you know, if it's weird in the Bible, it's probably important. Amen. And those were, those were the, his work opened up my eyes to all those passages that I would just read over and go, that's weird. I don't understand it. I'll just keep moving, you know, um, deal with it some other day, right? Or, you know, you don't have to understand it everything so but i would avoid those things well so uh reading his work really opened my eyes like um i i said in fact i dedicated the the first novel to to him and i said that his work opened my eyes like elisha's servant you know was open to see the spiritual realm and so to speak and that launched my my writing into that that world and when i saw that storyline in the Bible that I now call the war of the seed, which is, is, you know, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of Eve, which is ultimately Messiah. Right. Well, I saw that, but I also saw that dimension where, you know, giants like Goliath, they're not just anomalies or the Nephilim, you know, that you hear about in Genesis six. And then they, of course, the Anakim come into the, the promised land and such, but very little is explained about that stuff. And, 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 and it's not just a strange anomaly. When I saw that, it's all connected in a theological messaging. Um, that's what really opened my eyes and said, wow, I, I, could, write, I could write like a four-book four series on this. Well, now I'm up to, I'm up to like 12 books, you know, because there's a lot to write about, you know. And um, so that, that, that's when it began. And, and that was right when, you know, Amazon Kindle was just it – was, it, it had been out, but it was starting to break a wave. And that – my book did so well that I realized, you know, I can, I can make a living off of this. I can do, I can make, make some money and do what I really love and make a living. That's, that's a blessing that not everyone gets. Right. Mm -hmm. But I was just starting out and you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a great American novelist. Okay. I'm a Hollywood screenwriter. So I bring that kind of sensitive sensibilities in my writing. So I write my novels like big Hollywood epics, you know, kind of like you're watching the movie. Right. So that was my idea. And then, you know, uh, Chronicles of the Neph- Nephilim was born, and that went up to eight books, and it went through Abraham, Enoch, David, a bunch of the characters through the Bible. And then I realized I'm not yet done because I wanted to bring in, uh, you know, the book of Revelation, of course, is very supernatural, right? And I thought, how does this apply to the supernatural and my unique um, uh, understanding of eschatology and the book of Revelation? And so I wrote a four book series called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And then that follows the Chronicles of Nephilim. But then I realized there are some stories in the Old Testament that I didn't touch on that I need to, to address. And then maybe bring it also into the future, into like other countries, say China or um, you know Great Britain, that kind of thing. So I started Chronicles of the Watchers, and that's sort of interwoven with Chronicles of Nephilim. So like I wrote the, a story of Moses against the gods of Egypt under Chronicles of the Watchers. But you can like read that before you read Joshua Valiant in Chronicles of Nephilim. So they're all woven together and it's become this best-selling series and such and um, all that long-windedness. But, uh, you know, the, the, I've always been an artist. I was a visual artist. And then my writing career was interested in Hollywood and then writing novels just came out of my love for 
for theology. I wanted, I love to incorporate theology into my storytelling. But the problem is most Christian movies and Christian books and Christian music and Christian novels, that, that kind of stuff has been um, rather poorly done and very preachy, et cetera, you know, and that's because they don't, they don't value the craft as much as the message. And over my years as a Christian, as I studied the arts and I was heavily influenced by Francis Schaeffer, many of you probably don't even know who he is, but a Christian philosopher back in the seventies. And he opened my eyes to understanding how does my art uh, glorify God? How does it connect with God? Not in terms of like, oh, I'm preaching the gospel through it, but how does art, how does God himself see art? Well, I developed what's called my aesthetic in all those years and particularly studying Hollywood storytelling. And so I came out with some books. One was called Hollywood Worldviews, How to Watch Movies with Wisdom and Discernment. That was for Christians, how to appreciate movies and storytelling better. And then I wrote um, um, a couple other books on just the imagination. One's called The Imagination of God, and the other one's called God Against the Gods. And there I, t- I go into the Bible and talk about how God loves imagination, how he uses in other words, it's not just reason. Reason is a part of our, our faith. So we have faith as a foundation. Then we have reason that is, you know, based on that foundation of faith and, and works with it and balances each other out, so to speak. But then there's the, the most neglected component, you know, so you've got the overly rational people who, you know, just intellectualize everything. But then you also have the emotional uh, Christians who are just, you know, bouncing around off the chandeliers and stuff, thinking that, you know, religion is an emotion. But somewhere in between is the, the Christian life incorporates both of those things in balance, hopefully. But there's a third one that's often left out, and that's the imagination. And that was, that's been my purview, because as an artist, I, I just, I love the imagination, but I'd always had a hard time understanding you know, um, I, I sought to understand how my imagination worked with me as a Christian and my art. But my my later step in my later years of life was realizing and learning and studying how God incorporates imagination into our understanding of him and our theology. It's not just the, oh, it's okay to be creative. It's no, creativity is part of a necessary component of understanding God. And that's why I wrote some of my other books to try to explain that that understanding. And that led me, of course, to the, the chapter we're going to talk about, Acts 17. Many years ago, I, I wrote an article on it. You can, I, I put the article in those books. You can read it in both, both of my books, The Imagination of God or God Against the Gods, which we'll talk about. But, yeah, send me that link. I'll put that in the description. Se- okay, sure. Um, so Acts 17, you know, was I, I also along the – the many years of being a Christian, I have always had a love for the intellect and for philosophy and apologetics. In fact, I learned a lot of my theology through apologetics, you know, studying the cults and uh, false ideas and false philosophies of man and then countering it with God's word and his Bible and how does that integrate. And I've, I've always been drawn to that. And so when I, when I came to uh, Acts 17, I always understood there's many different you know, a Christian apologetic schools of thought. There's several that are dominant and everyone tends to, you know, go to Acts 17 as a, a model for how we should preach the gospel to pagans, but also, you know, um, and, uh, sort of as a model for, for apologetics. Well, I, 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 I understood that and um, have learned a lot from that, but I, began to see it through the eyes of the imagination and through the eyes of storytelling. And I came up with a slightly different understanding that I thought was a little bit more appropriate to the ancient original context in which Paul was, was preaching. And it was an understanding of that. Paul was not just, Paul was not, um, was not merely preaching the gospel and he was not merely, um, uh, you know, using rational, argumentation for the faith with unbelievers he was actually doing what i called subversion he was um retelling the ancient stoic narrative which was his audience and we'll go over these details of course but the big picture is he was retelling the pagan narrative their narrative of creation fall and redemption retelling it but using it with redefined Christian categories of understanding. And now, of course, some of them have things in common, but um, 
uh, we'll, we'll go through that and, and see how he made the difference. But that's the big picture of you know, what Paul was doing is he's retelling a story. He's not just merely engaging in rational argumentation. In fact, you know, you could make the argument that it, there's more of storytelling than rational argumentation in that in that passage. Um, but there's definitely a the context that's set up in Acts 17. You know, if we go there. Well, first of all, before we start launch onto that, did you guys want to uh, address anything of that that I had said? I don't well, want to just keep talking until. <laughs> well, no, that's a conclusion that I drew from it when I was reading. I was like, you know, how great was it that he met them where they were? You know, you see Christians nowadays yeah. that are, you know, standing outside the abortion clinics and the gay bars with their picket signs and screaming hate you know and things like that you know you're not going to win souls that way you know he, he met them where they were told them stories that were familiar to them and just kind of repackaged it in a way that they could understand i mean and they accepted it so much yeah. I, I can't remember because i don't have the text in front of me but they took him the place they took him to was the place where all the philosophers gathered on this hill and pitched their ideas so i mean because of his presentation they accepted him and they were willing to listen just like those in thessalonica you know that they were eager to to hear what he had to say because of the way he packaged it i i thought that was really yeah. really cool exactly so the areopagus is where is the hill there in yeah. athens there mm -hmm. and it was where they commonly went to exchange it's like the marketplace of ideas in a way it's kind of like hollywood right or you know it's it's or nowadays social media i guess in in, in some ways um but yeah, so so um, that was where they exchanged their new ideas and, and critiqued them, etc. Um, but you're right; that's also where the pagans were, and, the, and really, it's the I believe it's the only presentation of the gospel to pagans that is in the New Testament, which is very interesting. That's why a lot of people go use it as a as a model, which is fine, you know. But yeah, so so um, uh, what's interesting is you know. Paul, you know, you mentioned Paul is, is uh, you know, reaching them at their level, and this is where they went. Well, Luke is also depicting Paul as a kind of Socrates, you know, and he's drawing from some images and some concepts that were well known about Socrates. So, so he is sort of depicting Paul within this Socratic context, you know, because, for instance, Paul starts out in, in Acts 17.22. He's standing in the midst of Areopagus. You know, he goes, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Well, this statement, men of Athens, is, has been, is noted in several Greek writers like Aristotle and Demosthenes. And that's how, how they would always begin their discussions, men of Athens, right? And then he says, I perceive you are very religious. And this is also another something that, um, uh, that, that the, uh, for example, the Athenian dramatist Sophocles, he said the same thing. Athens is a head of states, the most devout. You know, you are such a religious people. So Paul is sort of using their language and 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 Luke is depicting them in that way. But I wanna I wanna bring out something too, is that there are two dominant streams of thought here at the time, and that was the Stoics and the Epicureans. And Paul actually focuses on the stoic storytelling he's you know why why is that the most important is that i don't know maybe there was another time where he focused on epicurean storytelling but but this particular passage we're going to look at a lot of his points and a lot of his ideas and they are very stoic related you know so the epicureans um had a different a slightly different worldview but the stoic narrative was probably the more dominant view at the time so i think that that's probably why he's focusing on that for this sermon right but he's, he's, he's going along, he talks about, you know, I, I saw an inscription to the unknown God and what you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you, you know. And he goes, um, for the God who made everything in the world does not live in temples made by man, nor, nor is he served by human hands. And as, as though he needed anything. Well, we know that this has a, this understanding has a, uh, a, a tradition within the Judaism, right, of the Bible, you know, God does not, God himself said to David, you know, I don't dwell in the temple, right? But specifically, the Stoics as well made this reference a lot because Stoicism was, 
it was a belief system that used the common concepts of the Greeks, like the logos, which was logos was the underlying order of the universe. But what they did was they, that's sort of like a rational principle, right? So the Stoics were more rational than religious, but they used the religious concepts like Zeus, etc. They would refer to them in, as stories, right? But they invested Zeus with a new meaning as Zeus is logos or logos, right? Which means they were subverting the Greek religious culture and sort of investing it with their own meaning, you know, and they would say, ah, Zeus, you know, so, so uh, Zeus is in all things, logos is in all things, Zeus is the underlying order of all things, right? And so they are in themselves um, sort of subverting the Greek religion with their more rationalistic approach. But nonetheless, they still have a religiosity to them. And, you know, Zeno, for example, he was the founder of Stoicism. He said, temples are not to be built to the gods. That was one of his famous sayings. Euripides, the Athenian tragedian, he said, what house fashioned by builders could contain the divine form within enclosed walls? So this Stoicism was very much critical at, at key points of the Greek religion because they were trying to bring along the you know, the, the ignorant plebeians into a better understanding, right? So they would they would talk about Zeus, but that's Logos. And then they would also say, well, you know, gods don't live in temples made by hands. So Paul's going down that same, pat, that same passageway, uh, referring to the similar concepts, using similar words as well. He says um, in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and times um, and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and per that perhaps they might feel their way towards him, grope for him and find him. And so this is also another, th there's concepts here that are very familiar to the Stoics. Uh, Cicero talked about the universal brotherhood of mankind. This was a common theme in Stoicism of how, you know, we are all brothers. We all come from the same source, right? Like Paul saying, one man from, from one man came every nation of mankind. Now, of course, he's not saying, he's not saying that's Noah. He's not saying it's Adam. He's not saying it's Noah, but he's, he's deliberately, I, I would argue he's deliberately keeping out his specific Jewish, uh, concepts or un definitions and understandings in order to be able to draw them in to the story, right? And I think of Deuteronomy 32 they, also, where you talk about the dividing of the, the peoples and the nations and stuff. I thought of that yes. when I read that. Yes, but it's interesting because they weren't the only ones that thought that way. The Greeks also had a concept of the gods as being over, like, in fact, it's in Plato. Plato writes of it as well, that the belief that there were gods over various nations, right? So it's interesting how some pagans get have the same concepts of the, the watchers and the, the territorial spirits over the nations, right? And so, and the allotting of the t boundaries. For example, Epictetus, in his discourse, is where he writes, um, how else could things happen so regularly by God's command, as, as it were? He tells the plants to bloom, etc. And then uh, Zeus maintains a distribution and oversees everything. And Cicero adds that um, the seasons and the zones of habitation, the boundaries of habitation, are evidence of God's existence. So yeah, they, he's, he's appealing to these common concepts. And this is, this is the first, um, one of the first dramatic, I would say, art, apologetic points that I think you know, is, uh, is important to understand, or, or even if you're just evangelizing whatever word you want to use. Um, first is that he compliments them. I see you are religious people, you know. Now, he, he acknowledges what they believe. You have an unknown God. Well, I'm going to proclaim to you that, that which you, you don't know, but you want to, you know. And then secondly, he, you know, he goes and he says, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, he's, he's finding common ground with them. And it's important to say, though, that he's not making the distinctions yet between his faith understanding and theirs. Not only that, but he's not, he's using words and concepts that they would understand differently, right? Zeus uh, set the boundaries and the habitations, not Yahweh, right? Um, 
not living in temples made by man, etc., uh, made by hands. Uh, they're you know they're thinking in their Greek version of that, but he's not making the distinctions yet. He will eventually, but he's not, and that's an important thing because I think all too often as a Christian, I'm I'm very eager to point out where I disagree with, with non Christians or unbelievers. You know uh, where they're wrong or uh, um, how God's different, how God, etc. And I think that this goes a long way towards affirming the fact that we need to connect with on common ground as much as we can without going into details, without going into the contradictions and just connect with our fellow pagans who are human beings created in the image, image of God. We have that basis to do that. Right. And so that's what I think he's doing there. Then he launches into the um, couple passages that is most known um, in this passage where he says, well, first of all, let me, let me point out one other cool little connection here he goes you know god determined the boundaries that they should seek god and and grope for him that they may find him well it's interesting because this phrase of groping for god is the same phrase that's used of the cyclops in um uh the odyssey groping you know for the men that blinded him right and so i think he's he might be making this sort of allusion to that you know you're like the cyclops groping You've been blinded, right? But he hasn't said that explicitly. He's just sort of hinting at that. And then he goes, "You're grope, we're, grope, we're all groping for God in a way, right? And he goes, yet he is actually not far from each of us. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So here's a point where most uh, people will understand. Oh, yeah, here's, he is quoting some actual Stoics. For example, the We Are His Offspring comes from Aratus in his Phenomenon. And he talk, Aratus says, Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O men, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus. All the marketplaces of human beings. The sea is full of him. So are the harbors. In every way, we all have to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. And then actually, um, Aratus uh, is probably rephrasing Cleanthes' hymn to Zeus, where he says, we live and creep upon the earth. We who live and creep upon the earth are all, his, are all thy children. Uh, so children of Zeus, right? So this is what's interesting, again, where uh, even your own poets have said we are his offspring. Well, what do their poets, what do the Stoic poets, Cleanthes and Aratus, what did they mean by we are his offspring? Not at all what Paul believes, right? I mean, no, we're not, you know, the, the stoic notion was, first of all, remember, Zeus is the pantheist. He's more of a pan, panentheist in, in that the logos is the underlying order of all the universe, and that's God, and that is in everything, right? And that unites everything. So they had a very panentheistic view. And so being his, our, his offspring is that we all come from this, you know, panentheistic logos. That's not at all what Paul believes. But he's say, quoting them as if he does. Now, I'm not saying he's deceiving them, but he's followed. But think about it. We as Christians can say, well, the Bible says that, in a sense, uh, there's two kinds of children of God, right? There's a sense of we're all created by God. So in that sense, we're his children created by him. But then there is, there is a finer distinction, which is children of God are those who are redeemed and, and have a connection with the creator. And, and those who are not are not. But there is a universal sense in which we're all created by God. And so you can see why they could say, hey, yeah, God created us like offspring, right? Um, and he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Well, that comes from Epimenides in his Critica. He talks about, um, you know, he's talking about Zeus again. They fashioned a tomb for you, but thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest for in you we live and move and have our being. So he's literally quoting. But again, this is the panentheistic view that God is in everything. In him we live and move and have our being. And of course, Paul believes God is sovereignly in control of all things. And there's nothing outside of his presence but he's not invested in the universe like the Stoics believed. And yet, like I said before, even more distinctly, it's interesting, he's not saying, he's quoting as if he agrees with them, because in a shallow sense, he does with the words. But this is the power of words and definitions and meanings. It is 
he, we know he has a different meaning. He'll get there, but it's just not yet. Give it some time. Invest. Get into the story. Bring them into the story. Join with them in the story, right? This is what I do as a storyteller in movies. You know, you, you talk about, you write stories about heroes who, who you go on a journey with the hero and you begin with them. And then by the end of the movie, the hero has gone through enough experiences that he learns and grows and becomes a better person. He didn't realize he needed to, right? You're building and a so connection the with the audience. Way, exactly, exactly. So you're, you're, you're pulling them in and, and agreeing with them as much as possible in a shallow sense, but in enough to make a connection. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up, motivate you and relax you. We hope you enjoy our coffee. Be bold, be humble, be Kevlar. And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. And for listeners of the Dig Bible Podcast, use the code, all caps, DIG20, whenever you're checking out to get a 20% off discount. Enjoy. And that's what's very, uh, you know, imagine some of the evangelists of today or the apologists of the, today, if, if they were there, they would probably criticize Paul for, you know, you're not making as enough of a distinction, Paul, right? And that's where they get it so wrong. I just can... took an apologetics class that was so eye-opening for me. Rick Hastie, a guy we had on the show done an apologetics class, it was six weeks, and he said, the common misconception is everybody thinks apologetics is the art of arguing and winning. He said, No. He said, apologetics is the art of relationship. He said, you ask questions, wow. he said, not to get the answer you want out of them or to prove your point right. No, to see what that person thinks, see how they believe, to build a connection. He said, and then it's also a, an invitation. He said, ask them out for pizza or go out, you know, for coffee. He said, and then you slowly have these conversations and build a connection with that person. That way they're more open to to receive what you have to say. And that, that was, yeah, I always seen exactly. apologetics as like, Hey man, I want to learn how to, you know, how win, win an argument. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, boy, I tell you, I've been too often guilty of, of that very thing of just wanting to win an argument. And it's, you know, um, I think probably two of my favorite apologists for embodying that very graciousness that you're describing that we should all be like, but very few of us are is Greg Kokel which I highly recommend his book tactics on it's, it's, it's about um, apologetics as relationship, not as arguments. And uh, Sean McDowell, who like I've, these guys, they speak the truth, but man, they speak with graciousness to unbelievers and patience and such that I certainly don't have. Uh, but yeah, so this is, you know, this is, we're, we're going down that path with him. He's drawing them in and, um, and he's not made any distinctions yet. He's trying to find that common ground. And in a sense, isn't it true? You know, like don't we don't we all like know of movies that are partly true, but not we wouldn't agree with the worldview or songs that have some really truthful lyrics about maybe pain or suffering, but they don't know God and they don't have the full picture. But there's enough truth in there that you can say, yeah, you know, I like this song or. You know, one of one of my favorite examples was, um, you know, my gosh, it's an old classic now. <laughs> um, but I always used to love to refer to the Matrix, you know, the Matrix movie, because the Matrix, when it shows, you know, Neo waking up and realizing that everyone's a slave and they don't know it. And he was a slave, too. Right. Because he took but then he took the red pill. He got repelled. <laughs> and um, 
and and that waking up experience was exactly what I experienced as a born again Christian when I became um, a believer. When the Holy Spirit actually came into my life and changed me from, and I began to see around me just what Neo was like, you know. So I would use that all the time as the, one of the best examples of what it, of, of of at least the existential experience of being born again. Now, of course, the Matrix movie, which I've written. Uh, a whole article on it. It is anti-Christian, actually. They use Christian imagery in the movies, in the whole series, but they're very specifically self-avowed Nietzschean nihilists <laughs> who are you who are subverting Christianity by using our concepts and images and investing with the new meaning of self-salvation. Right? And Carl so, Jung. So, yeah, and Jung, Jungian. All, 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 Nietzsche is, is one of their dominant influences, but. Um, what I'm suggesting is Paul is actually doing the same thing. And, and um, this, this could be a little controversial because um, some people think, oh, no, this is a worldly view. No, no, actually, uh, this is what I call subversion, right? You, you enter into the story of your opponent. You know, you enter into it. You retell it. You repackage it. But you invest it with new meaning. Now that new meaning you don't necessarily explain up front because it would it would be it would stop them. You want them to get into the story and go along with you. Then you uncover the the the, the new meanings. Which, by the way, this is what most everybody does. This is what's going on right now in our culture. You know, as we see, you know, the woke culture is lit and postmodernism is literally their goal is to control language, and this is why you see them changing words and definitions all the time they're using words and definitions and changing them because they know the power of language to influence us right and so consequently you know uh this is what people do with euphemisms like you know oh it's 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 not abortions just you know it's not killing a human being it's just you know taking care of uh fetal tissue you know that kind of a thing liberation of the woman's body <laughs> yes. Yeah. Celebration. And, and same thing with the trans ideology, you know, where there's a taking control of the definition of the word gender, which has always been, you know, intimately linked with sex and and divesting them from each other and giving them different definitions. Now, sex is your physical, but tr gender is your internal. But now, as they've redefined words, now sex, too, has become a assigned rather than an intrinsic biological reality, right? So they redefine reality by redefining language, which is what changes my, people's minds and understanding of the world. And look, I, I mean, obviously a lot of people are not accepting it, but it's, it's growing, it's ga gaining weight because that's the power of reinvesting known concepts with um, new meanings. And mm -hmm. I, what I'm arguing is this is what everyone does, even God does it in the Bible. You know, one of my favorite examples is Leviathan. You know, if you study Leviathan through the Bible, um, you know, some people think, oh, that's just, a, oh, that's a literally a dinosaur or something. No, no. If you study the notion of Leviathan, it's very much a symbol, um, a symbol of chaos. And Yahweh crushes the chaos in order to establish his covenanted order. So he describes crushing the heads of Leviathan when he creates, uh, when he takes Moses through the Red Sea in, in Psalm 74. And he establishes the the old the the old the mosaic covenant. He describes that as him crushing the heads of Leviathan because he's crushing that disorder of that was Egypt and the chaos, and he's going to create his order. And that's a very common notion in the ancient Near East. Well, that's the same thing as God uses a notion that was very well known in the Middle East. You know, Egypt had Apophis, the sea dragon. Um, Canaan had Leviathan as well. Yum. Um, Tiamat, Tiamat in um, in Mesopotamia. All of them used sea dragons as symbols of chaos. So God uses the same symbol, but He invests it with His meaning. He is the crusher of the dragon, not Baal, right, or Baal. And um, so this is this is what God does what i'm saying is this is not just a trick this isn't even evil or wrong this is just how we operate as human beings and so paul is doing the same thing as well Let, let's keep going now we're going to get 
closer to the where we're almost near the twist here okay so verse 29 being god then therefore being god's offspring we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man again uh the stoics you know railed on this all the time you know you are a fragment of god you are you have within you a part of him so they believed that God was inside of us, all beings, all created beings. We were a part of God. God was in us in that sense. Um, and therefore, you can't build a house of stone for them, right? So the Stoics had that same notion. Now, this also is an Old Testament concept that the prophets as well mocked and often um, put down the pagans. But he's, he's taking a point of contact, a point of agreement, right? And he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Ah, that's another stoic concept. The notion of ignorance and knowledge. This was a very uh, stoic and Gnostic form as well. But the idea was they believed that that um, the stoics literally like believed that, that we were ignorant of the, first of all, that God was in all things. That's how that's the creation notion that in terms of the story the narrative god is in all things he's the logos he infuses all things and he creates and establishes all things but humanity becomes ignorant of this god within us so ignorance was literally in, in the greek that was their concept that they dealt with What's wrong with man? He's ignorant of the God within him. So therefore he treats one another poorly. You know, he does evil, etc. So we need to learn that we are a fragment of God. Redemption is then found in, in um, you know, understanding this unity of the brotherhood of all man and that God is, the Logos is within in all of us, right? That's the Stoics. So he's saying God looked over, over uh, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. Um, so he's, connecting with that notion of enlightenment so to speak and again it's partially true isn't it but now he commands all people everywhere to repent okay now comes the point where paul is going to twist he's going to bring like the twist in a in a thriller movie you know where all of a sudden the meaning of everything you've heard is different than what you thought remember when you saw the first time Remember when you saw the movie The Sixth Sense? That's what I was thinking, I swear. Yeah. That's the best example. It's like, because it's so worked. You know, I, me I remember, in fact, watching it as a screenwriter. I'm watching the movie. I'm going, this, is, this story is weird. It's not working right. He's not like, he's meeting with her, but they're not connecting. They're not, what's going on here? It just didn't make sense to me. And I never, it never crossed my mind until like you realize oh he's dead and then you realize everything you've been watching was the opposite of what you thought it was that's the twist and that's what subversion is when you you show you start to show them there's a different reality and it changes the way you see things so paul says then this way he brings in repentance the repentance so the stoic ignorance was un, unwitting right they can't they don't we've been blinding by layers of creation you know so we're blinded but according to Christianity, we are will our ignorance is willful. Paul even says that in Ephesians 4, right? Our will ignorance is willful. So that's a difference. And then he says the first thing that is actually a contradiction with Stoicism. He says, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now the Stoics believed in a great conflagration of fire where the universe would was created out of fire and then it would go back into fire but but that wasn't judgment it was it was like the oscillating universe it would go back and then rise like a phoenix out of the ashes a phoenix out of the ashes again so it was a conflagration that was an oscillating return right so when when paul says he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world that would be offensive to the stoics there was no judgment there is no judgment um and the fire is not a fire of judgment for them but he's saying it is and he's going to do it by a man whom he has appointed that would also be offensive to the stoics because no man judges the universe right no man judges mankind right um if anything only zeus could only logos could 
And then he says, and he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. Well, that would be the ultimate offense to the Stoics because Aeschylus wrote in his Eumenides poem, when the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. So the Greeks very clearly, in a lot of all of their literature as well, they, they believed that Hades was it. You could never come back. Now, there would be an occasional person that came back for the sake of a story, but the belief was there is no resurrection. So to say that make this claim was would be truly uh, offensive, I guess, would be the modern word to use for it. But it's interesting because, so this is the twist. But even then, again, modern apologists and evangelists would probably critique Paul, or at least Luke, by saying, not once does he ever use the name Jesus, does he? Now, you could say, oh, he did, but he left, Paul. Luke just didn't say it. It's possible, sure. But we're reading the story. Luke is writing for, with a very specific point in mind as well. He's, he's telling us a narrative. He's communicating something specifically to us. And Luke specifically makes the point that Paul does not, he alludes to Jesus. Yes, obviously. Now, what, what, you know, evangelists would say, you're a bad evangelist, Paul. And you, you got to say the name of Jesus. Again, I think there is power. Um, I'm, not, I'm not against them. Just so you know, I, I believe in saying, you know, telling people about Jesus. Sometimes that specific name can be a great way to break break through walls and and start to communicate for sure. But it's it's important to understand that sometimes it could be a very important means of connecting with with them by letting them come to their own conclusions. And that's the power of storytelling. He's going through the narrative, creation, fall, redemption. But he's alluding to a new a new way of understanding, but he's not getting super specific. Why? So that the audience can understand for themselves, and if they realize it, it will be more powerful for them. And um, this is where, you know, again, as a storyteller, I can say this is where we uh, we're at, if we're at a movie and we feel like we're being preached at. A lot of times, Christian movies are poor, are bad at doing this. They do this a lot. They're preachy because they feel like they have to have that clarity of explaining something, you know, in every detail um, or people won't understanding and that gets preachy and that turns people off. But if you've ever noticed that when you're watching a movie and you've seen the hints, but it hasn't been explicit, but you make the connections and you discover it for yourself, you feel like you have grown in your own ability because you figured it out for yourself. Someone didn't tell you. Narnia. So there's some, there's a lot of value in that approach. Yeah, just like Narnia, you know, uh, uh, the lion, you know, sacrificed himself and come back. I mean, he didn't come right out and say, you know, this is a, you know, archetype to, of the Messiah. No, we figured it out for ourselves, and it meant a whole lot more to us, you know, for me personally. You know, it's interesting because, um, and, and I, I do believe that that uh, this is this is often a very effective means. It really is because. Um, that's the power of storytelling where if, 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 if you let the audience figure it out for themselves, it's going to impact them. So let me give you an example. My movie, To End All Wars, which is a true story about uh, allied prisoners of war underneath the Japanese in World War II. And they're being beaten and brutalized and just uh, unbelievable suffering under, at the hands of the Japanese. And the men in the camp are struggling, and some of them want to fight back, some of them want to escape, some of them want to kill the guards, right? But Christianity enters the camp, and it affects them and changes them. So we, we, we we're telling this part of the story. They get a Bible, and they want to give men hope. So they also had Shakespeare and Plato, so they decide to start a university and teach them, right? Well, that's what we show. We show them teaching Plato and Shakespeare, but then we have a moment where they're reading from the Bible, and it's interesting because in the movie, we cut out the part where it said, Jesus said, because he's reading the Bible and they're studying it, like doing a Bible study. Jesus said, love your neighbor, you know, et cetera. Love those who hate you. Love your enemy, right? We cut out the phrase Jesus said. We just cut to them and he just says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, right? And, and it was so much more powerful because people knew where it was coming from, but they weren't told. They knew it for themselves. And I think the impact was much heavier on people because of that, because we didn't say that name. Now, yeah, there will be some people who may may not know where that comes from. That's possible. But 
the, the purpose of art and storytelling is not to preach a sermon and make everything super clear. The purpose of art is to, you know, stir the soul and get people thinking about their need for truth and, and redemption. So, um, so that, yeah, so this, this idea of naming Jesus is not always the best thing at times if it's the appropriate situation. Again, I'm all for the name of Jesus for sure. And then he says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. This is what I wanted to tell you, like something you were mentioning earlier before was that, um, you know, people accepted him because he came in on their territory and told, you know, yeah, that's true. But ultimately, when you get to the truth, you're still going to have people who reject you. And some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And isn't that life? Some people mock you and hate you and reject you no matter how gracious you are in telling, seeking to connect with the truth. But then the more winsome you are, the more opportunities you let people say, you know what, I want to hear more about this. But it doesn't mean they're going to get saved at the moment. What it means is you're planting seeds, you're watering plants, and, and God's doing the growth and the work in them. And, and you've advanced it to that, you know, to that degree. And so, you know, that's, that's sort of the, um, you know, the, the uh, quick version of the, that passage that I, I've given actual whole lectures on it um, because it was so influential, uh, an influence on me and my own understanding of God through my imagination and how to, how to get the gospel to people because I'm a storyteller and I want, I, I have the gospel of the kingdom and that's, that's my answer. So I want to seek to communicate that kingdom in a winsome way and in a way that is entertaining and um, fascinating to people and draws them in. So I use this, this motif of, you know, trying to, to tell stories within a vein that, that, um, that people can relate or connect to. This is where genres, for example, is something that is, is really helpful. In about a month, I'm going to be releasing my latest novel, and it's a change of pace for me. It's called Cruel Logic, The Philosopher Killer. And it's, a, it's actually a serial killer story, a thriller, about a serial killer at a woke university. And um, he, uh, it, it's quite an interesting, he's a philosopher, actually, and so he's killing people and he's philosophizing with them. But... Um, so I'm telling a story about a, a typical genre of a thriller with a serial killer, you know, and, and the detective has to, you know, hunt him down. But I'm dealing with these questions of morality, the existence of God and the existence of evil and all that. But I'm doing it through this, this um, serial killer who is, is actually capturing university professors and he's videotaping them and he's debating them. And the topic of the debate is his moral right to kill them. So he says, well, if what you say, say is true about the universe, then give me one valid reason why I shouldn't kill you, and I'll let you go. And none of them can, because without God, all their philosophies are humanistic and, and godless, and they have no foundation for their morality. And so they don't get away. So that's one creative way of using the serial killer genre, for example, uh, to, to talk about true moral issues of, of life and reality. You know, And so that's how how we can enter into the storytelling of the world, so to speak. Um, and that's what a lot of us story, Christian storytellers are doing, you know, whether it's fantasy or thrillers or movies or what have you, that's what we're doing. What do you mean? I love that. I think that's a really, I'm not into the uh, serial killer type stuff. I've never liked those shows or, or those, but that I actually, that sounds extremely interesting. I actually think I might have to pick that one up and read that one because even though it's a little out of my comfort you know, that, zone. <laughs> fair enough. But, you know, there's an, another example of that is the, a movie that's out right now. It's um, Nefarious. Mm -hmm. uh, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, go try it. It's not at a lot of theaters. But it's a, it's a story about a psychiatrist who has to go to prison and examine uh, a guy on death row to make sure he's not insane before they execute him. <laughs> and the man claims to be demon-possessed. And as we're watching the movie, of course, the psychologist doesn't believe in that, right? But we're watching the movie, and we can see he probably really is, right? And it's it's kind of like screw tape letters. He's just talking. Mm. The whole movie is them talking, but it's so fascinating because it's like screw tape letters. The demon is revealing truths about reality that this guy doesn't even believe it's a demon, so he doesn't even believe what he's being told. He doesn't even realize it, right? 
And it's just a very powerful way of showing the truth, how people are blinded by the truth, by their own secular, godless worldviews, you know. Uh, I think that's another great example. But it's done as a traditional, you know, horror film. There's no gore or violence really in it. It's very mild. It's like TV. But it's, it's, it's that interesting concept of what if you didn't believe in demons and you're, you're a psychologist and you're talking to this guy and what would he reveal, you know, that kind of thing. So that, I highly recommend that movie. I, I eventually will probably watch that. It's one of those things where it's just not my yeah, – Ben shaking his head. It's not one of my – it's not my normal genre, but I – and for one, yeah. I guess – Understandable. More so than more so than even the serial killer thing because, for example, if, if, if a man comes at me, you know, I, I can physically defend myself. But when you talk about the demon, you know, the, the world of demons and the world of, of um, you know, the, the, the spiritual realm, things that I can't yeah. see, that I can't control, that you know are there. Like, you know, without God, you're defenseless. So when you yeah. when you look at that, that's truly terrifying. So, but, you yeah, know. Oh, absolutely. And that's why that's why I'm kind of fearful of of some demon some demon movies some of them are just hollywood goofy they're not Mm. they're not they really aren't frightening a lot of the typical ones aren't but um when they are more realistic like the conjuring demon possession it's like you're right it's it's scary for me to watch those movies because i know there is a reality behind it Mm -hmm. right um this movie nefarious isn't like that because it doesn't have you know he's you know he doesn't there's no special effects and stuff like that but it's the ideas. It's screw tape letters. You know, if you ever read that classic book, oh, yeah. it's, you know, one demon revealing how he, how he brings humans uh, down into temptation. And it's really, you're seeing through the back door of how they do it type of thing. And that's kind of what this is all about, but you're right. Not, and, and by the way, that's why we need many kinds of movies and many genres with the Christian worldview. You know, the Jesus revolution was another great movie that came out. I'm normally, I normally don't care for most Christian movies, but Jesus Revolution was fantastic. It was a great, not preachy, and it was just a look into this subculture of Jesus, the Jesus movement back in the 70s. That was really fascinating, but it was very honest and fair. And um, so, yeah, and then we've got other, you know, we've got, um, you know, romances and stuff uh, like Redeeming Love. That's another one that was a sort of a retelling of the story of, um, of uh, what was it? Was the one who married a prostitute? Gomer was it Hosea? Uh, the yeah. Prophet who married a prostitute. What's well, a retelling? Yeah, it's a retelling of that story in a modern day like Western context, you know, which is kind of interesting. So yeah, we need many different ways of telling stories. Absolutely, and some people it's not for everyone. So, my my own books. My wife doesn't watch my doesn't read my books, you know, because they're big epics and there's a lot of sex and violence in there and it's a little it's a little harsh for her so um and i get that that's fine jumping back to the screw tape letters i had you know as as kids we were given that uh they they made a comic book version of that if you remember that um oh really and yeah i'm fairly certain it was done by marvel if i look back i have to go look but really and then i have another comic book that was stories of the bible that was done by dc too and I mean, these are older. Wow. The screw tape letter was one. It's not. Um, it has to probably be the '80s when it was done. Yeah. But the um, the the DC before one, they went woke. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what you you think about that, and you were. And they kinda, won't do that now. But that's what was hitting me earlier when you were talking about that, and you were talking about the um, how things are kind of being uh, uh, pushed on us polarized. slowly. We're polarized, and it's you look at those Marvel oh. movies, and you look at the superheroes, you look at the you know, people don't understand the concept of who Thor was or who, you know, who Loki yeah. was or, or is for that matter. And and you go through it. There's, and these are people that were, we're being looked at, you know, favorably now. These are, these They're are heroes. Heroes. They're the ones that are the, you know, we go back to the idea of Prometheus. You oh, know. They're not heroes. You guys, they're gods. They're, they're the gods of this culture. Oh, yes. The comic book. And the Marvel movies are the gods of this culture. And because the Greeks, a lot of the Greeks didn't believe the gods either. They used them in the same way. They used them as their, their comic book means of explaining their, their beliefs about the universe. And they, a lot of them didn't believe in those gods either, no more than people do in comic books. But it doesn't matter. It's still their religion, and it still is a systemic uh, – the, the Marvel universe is a religion. 
whether people know it or not. Well, they're but people that's are letting them. And that's exactly it. People, it's affecting people when they don't even know it, and that's that's where a lot of those things come yeah. in. And when you're talking about some of those more, uh, like you said, um, uh, the Conjuring or Ben, the Insidious, and and you know yeah. some of these other demonic movies, where I think that that's the same thing where you're kind of opening a door a little bit. You're opening the window at least and, and like, potentially letting something in. And it's, to me, it's scary that you're, you know, that we start, um, I guess, entertaining those ideas because it slowly does, whether or not we realize that all those things are affecting us one way or another. You, you get watching it and then it's, Oh, it's not as bad. It's mm-hmm. where you're getting desensitized to it. Well, that's one thing I was talking sure, about. Sure, That's why I want to do an sure, episode with you about that in the future. Just talk about all that, you know, in, in Hollywood and the movies and how they're planting that seed in the, the culture and the minds of our children. Sure. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, and, you know, um, well, I mean, that's how the world has always operated, right? So Hollywood just seems to be a particularly powerful means of doing that, you know. Well, Brian, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody where they can uh, find your books, find anything that you've put out. Uh, go ahead, give yourself a good plug here. Well, a couple things is, one, all my books are exclusively, well, first of all, all my books are in paperback, ebook, and audiobook, and they're all exclusively on Amazon, and um so you can just go there and find my name and you see a, you know, a whole bunch of, you can find my author page. And, but if you're also interested in more things, my Godawa.com website, I, uh, I've, I, I've sought to, to make a, a creative and interesting website that's worth your time. If you go there, are lots of articles related to all these issues, the Nephilim and all kinds of stuff that, that my books are based on. I like to have the scholarship that people can look at, uh, but also I've done something that I've been recently updating, and that is I'm, I cast all my novels, all, most all the major characters and villains, I cast them. And um, where you, I have an artist, Cam Harless, who, who uh, is a great AI artist. He uses Midjourney. And I've been working with him to recast all my novels, and we're more than halfway through right now and I put them on the website so you know you can go there and if you read my novels you can see them and they're just amazing artwork you know they and they're photorealistic so they're it's like it's like they're photos right it's like it's like movies it's like uh it's like we're casting a movie you know and you put those on um, Facebook, it's really didn't you? cool what's that you shared those on Facebook didn't you yeah yeah they yes, look really yes, cool yes I did I'm still in the middle of that right now and for fans of the series I'm going to be putting out as a book but, uh, yeah, so you can find a lot of cool stuff at the website as well. But, you know, every, everything you need to, to look further and buy is at, at Amazon under my name. I'm digging the audio books. I hate to read. Cool. <laughs> if somebody can read it for me, I'm good to go. I hear you. <laughs> Listen, well, I'll tell you what. Go, go to my website and um, click on um, films and short films. And I have a extended scene that I shot out of the script for Cruel Logic. And then eventually the script became a movie. But it's like a six-minute scene. It's really cool. It's one of the debates. And you'll get a sense for the vibe of it. Okay. And I think you'll like it. A lot of, like, Greg Kokel uses it. He shows it to apologetics audiences and stuff. People love it. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. It's called Cruel It's just under short films, Cruel Logic. Okay. Awesome. I appreciate it, my friend. You have you a bet. good one, and thank you so much for coming on, but we'll be in touch. Yeah, thanks, Brian. We really appreciate it. Thanks buddy. for having me, guys. God bless Talk you. Talk to you later. See you. Well, that's a wrap. Hope you guys enjoyed a little sit-down, a little theological session with uh, Brian Godawa. Keep digging, guys. Get that shovel. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Don't be like a county worker. Get in that hole and dig some. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and check out our YouTube channel. See ya.